But then later in my career, there were times where I've gone up the ladder and the same thing happened. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, because when I got into a leadership role and I had the opportunity to look at the people who were on my team, that was the first order of business. Who's equitable and who's not? And let me go to HR and make it right. But I think because it's not top of people's mind, but there shouldn't be no reason why equity shouldn't be top of mind for everyone. Just lets me know we have more work to do. That was Nicole Wilson, Vice President of Community Health Operations for IU Health, talking about how diversity, equity, and inclusion drives health equity outcomes for our Indiana community. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So, Nicole, welcome to the 20th episode of the Freedom Forum. This is the March Women's History Month episode, and we are so excited to have you here. So before we get started and really digging into it, will you please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that have led to you becoming the Vice President of Community Health Operations for IU Health? Yes. Well, thank you for having me here. I am so excited and thrilled and actually honored to be on this podcast. I love your show. Oh, thank you. And when you reached out to me, I was so excited and honored and just love what you're doing in the community. So thanks for having me. So a little bit about me. I'm just Nicole Wilson from Indianapolis. I grew up on 34th and Martin Luther King and ended up staying in the city, went to Pike High School and did all of my education in the state of Indiana. So I started at DePaul University with a bachelor's degree in sports medicine. Then I went on to get my master's and doctorate in physical therapy and then went back to get a master's of business administration. And professionally, I started out as an athletic trainer and physical therapist turned healthcare administrator. And prior to this role, that I'm currently in, I spent the majority of my career being kind of your hardcore healthcare administrator and operations leader. And I've led everything in healthcare from starting with physical therapy to expanding to urgent care. I've launched virtual care programs. I've led primary care and pediatrics. So your typical product line leader and how I got to this role was actually by happenstance. I was doing my thing as a healthcare operator, working at Community Health Network um, in a vice president role there, doing the day-to-day operations like operators do. And um, this was in the middle of COVID. Things had changed personally in my life where I'd say my husband and I became caregivers of our parents. Yeah, yeah. His parents, um, their health declined during COVID and he lost both of his parents. Oh, wow. Um, my family members, um, my stepmom and sister were in a very tragic car accident and I had to go down to Florida to help my dad. My dad got COVID. My sister got COVID. So um, in the midst of all that going on and trying to run a health system and the COVID operations, I got a call about this role and Someone said, hey, can you meet and talk with me? Happens to be my current boss now and um, like to share with you about this position. And I really didn't even have time to meet with him because we were taking care of family, taking care of work. We have a small child at home. And um, on my way to Florida to help take care of my family, I said, I have one hour (laughs) 
that I can meet with you about this job and sat, learned about it, initially thought, this isn't me. I'm a healthcare operator. This is more community health. This is more public health. This is not what I was trained on. But then um, as my, uh, as I kept being pursued for this job, um, came to realize that it really is a calling. It really was a blessing and an opportunity to mix what I love about healthcare and operations and to be able to have an impact in the community. Right, right. And especially in the community that I grew up in. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, IU Health, their ge- geography spans where I grew up at 34th and Martin Luther King. So I took a leap of faith and felt like this was a calling for me to be able to mix what I love and do in the community with my healthcare background. And here I am. Wow. That is already a, such a powerful and amazing story. Wow. I'm so inspired by that because there's so many nuggets and lessons just in that story. But but I'm not going to stop there. So I knew as long as I've been in Indianapolis, you've been in healthcare. I remember seeing you years ago and you were really on your advance as I viewed it at that point. And you did start out as a physical therapist, then just went into management of rehab services, and then ended up where you are now in executive leadership, running, you know, again, primary care and clinical services. That is a serious career progression through the healthcare system. So I'd like to ask, when you first started out doing this, did you know that was the career trajectory? Is that something that you were educated on? Or has it kind of been this leap of faith from position to position? And Again, how did you make that lineage? You told us how you were blessed enough to have this role, but how did you kind of make that transition through the various roles and particularly in executive leadership? You know, early on, I don't know that I knew that I wanted to be a healthcare leader versus someone who was in the sports medicine or physical therapy field. I knew that I had a linkage to physical therapy. I happened to twist my ankle really bad when I was in high school, go through the rehab process and see all that was involved. I ended up having ankle surgery. Wow. And so I loved the physical therapy aspect of it. I loved the human body and how it worked and um, knew that that was a path that I wanted to take. I, I remember when I was young thinking, oh, I want to be a physician because I did grow up with the black women in my family were in healthcare. Yes. My aunt is a nurse. And my mom always worked in healthcare, like insurance, and her other sister also worked in insurance. So I always had a tie to healthcare. My grandmother, who uh, actually passed away a year ago around this time, she was a, a candy striper, a nurse aide, actually at Methodist Hospital for 30 years. And so I saw women and Black women in healthcare. So that always called to me. And as I had my injury, It kind of refined to the physical therapy area. But then when I got out and started working and started seeing the bigger picture of systems, there was a turning point where I said, I don't want to be pigeonholed in physical therapy. I see myself as a healthcare leader and I want to set myself on that trajectory. And that is a very hard pivot point for people who are clinicians sometimes, um, especially physical therapists. The world in healthcare revolves around physicians and nurses. And so typically when you've seen that transition, it has been nurses or physicians who go into those leadership roles historically. And I really had to be intentional 
about making that pivot. I joined organizations like the American College of Healthcare Executives, um, the National Association of um, Health Services Executives, so that I could get some continuing education on the topics and trends in general for healthcare administration. And then I had to let people know in my organization, I don't always want to be in physical therapy. Right, right. I need an opportunity to lead physicians. I would love to learn about primary care or urgent care and got blessed enough for someone to give me the opportunity. I think they saw that I was wor- willing to work for it and that I um, was working pretty well in the positions that I was in within physical therapy and was blessed to have that opportunity. So you, you've talked about how you were surrounded by women in your background who ha- who were in healthcare. So you were exposed to that industry um, when you were small and were inclined to, my mother was a candy striper. So, I, yes. but, but she actually learned being a candy striper. She did not want to become yes. a nurse. <laughs> I tell people all the time, you know, what you, those opportunities are great because they tell you what you want to do don't and what you do. don't want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's value in all that. So so you've had these unique experiences in climbing the corporate ladder of some of the largest healthcare entities in our state mm-hmm. and nationally. And you've talked about how you've navigated that career path. And it seems like you've done excellent for yourself. But have there been some limiting barriers or obstacles? Have there been things that you've particularly encountered because, A, you mentioned, you know, being a diverse woman in the field, but also not being a physician or a nurse in Mm -hmm. the field. I'm sure that brought its own challenges. So can you speak to some of those issues and challenges and barriers that you've been successful in overcoming and how did you do that? I can think of a few instances. I remember getting my first leadership role as a manager. And when I got into that role, First, we were coming on the heels of someone who had been in the role only for a short period of time and it just didn't work out. And so, and I had actually applied the first time around, okay. didn't get it. Okay. They gave it to someone else, external, no big deal. I kept doing my thing. And then when his time was up, they reopened it again and I was tapped and said, could you reapply for this job? And I did. I was successful, um, appreciative of the opportunity. And I remember about a month or two into the job, I had to start down the path of performance appraisals. And this these this time was over people who had just been my peers, right? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so as I was going through that, there was a particular person on my team who I happened to graduate with. We both graduated the same day, the same time, the same place from physical therapy school, and we were good friends. And that was the first time that I saw some huge pay discrepancies because I was in that position, right, to be able to look. And and I remember looking and going through the performance appraisal process and thinking, wow, I'm this person's whole manager and I make less than that person. And how is that? Right. Because even when I came here and then got my promotion, I got a bump and I still am not making the same amount or even more than someone who I graduated with. And who we should at least be at the same level and maybe, just maybe, because I am now a manager, should have a little bit more. And I thought, do I rock the boat? Right, right. You know, like, how do I go about this? And it just wasn't settled right in my spirit. So I ended up talking to my boss about it and saying, you know, can you help me understand? Because I don't understand how this 
wasn't taken into account um, when I came into this role as manager to make sure that equity was at the table. And at the time, it was like, oh, we must have missed something. You know, let's make it right and da, 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 da. But then later in my career, there were times where I've gone up the ladder and the same thing happened. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, because when I got into a leadership role and I had the opportunity to look at the people who were on my team, that was the first order of business. Who's equitable and who's not? And let me go to HR and make it right. But I think because it's not top of people's mind, I don't know what it is, but there shouldn't be no reason why equity shouldn't be top of mind for everyone. Just lets me know we have more work to do because it happened a few times in my career where here I am, (laughs) same level of experience and come to find out the dollars are coming up short. And that's just, that's, I don't know. I I know that now the way that I lead, I make sure it's right for everybody, that everybody's right sides and that I have that conversation with HR. And I think that's where more leaders need to be. So that was, that was one. I just continued to speak up for myself in a non-threatening way. I wasn't mad, but just, can you help me understand how this is possible? And there was one conversation that you know, it, it didn't end where I wanted it to end later on in my career in terms of the equity and how things were handled. And it never really settled well with me. All I could do was make the fight and then duly note. Right. OK, I know where I stand. Right. I know how you value me because I've presented clear evidence and you have said, yes, we see your evidence and we're still not going to move on it. Duly noted. Duly noted. I know what I'm working with. Those are, again, so powerful because I take note from that that you haven't cowered from the fight because you've absolutely stepped up and said, "Okay, this isn't right. But you've also taken the note and allowed the organization or company to show their cards. Either you're going to make this right or you're not. And if you're not, cool, I'm not going to fuss and I'm not going to. But I know that. I see you. Yeah, exactly. And I know how I have to move moving exactly, forward. Exactly. Exactly. I, I cannot expect that to come from you. So I have to take things into my own hands, whatever that may mean. Right. Absolutely. And I can make it better for others who I have the opportunity to make sure that when I build a team, that I build it right. Because nobody should ever have to see that in say, hey, what's going on? And and if you look at your performance and there's performance deficits, okay, maybe that's the reason. But if you're looking at your education level, your experience level, and the value you add to the table, and still it's yeah. not equitable and nobody can give you a reason, I should be able to ask you some questions. Absolutely. And you have some answers. So that that's a great note because I think there are so many people who are, may be listening to this who are in a position to hire and fire and make sure that their team and they're not looking at that at all. So certainly I would ask, you know, our audience to take that as a takeaway that if you're in a position that you have the opportunity to just make your team whole based on fairness and equity, please Please do yeah, that. And right? be proactive about it. When I moved into um, a VP role at another organization, that was my first order of business because I remember coming into my one role and realizing where I was. And um, I had a woman leader on my team who was making markedly less, same level of experience than everyone else on the team. 
And I went to HR and I said, help me understand. And they gave me some history about when she was with a different department, they had to make cuts and this, that, and the other. And that's why she landed where she landed because of that historical situation. And I said, but what are we going to do about it now? Right, right. And they worked with me and I had that conversation with her and made her right. And she cried on the spot. Absolutely. Cried on the spot because she was like, I have never had a leader come to me proactively and say, I noticed that something was out of equity here and make it right without me having to fight, fight. Absolutely. (laughs) And I said, that's not that's not your fight. You know, that's my role. And more leaders need to take on that type of proactive leadership to make sure from the get go things are in late and then you won't have any troubles later on. I mean, but that's so powerful. And the fact that you are doing it proactively, you gain that woman's loyalty forever, ever. Amen. She will always be down with that organization because she knows somebody actually is looking out for me and that there is no way to get better performance out of people than let them know they care in that way. That's so awesome. So, so Nicole, you, you've talked about, you know, some of the characteristics and skills you've gleaned in order to empower such a career success to date, but what are some of your personal policies or some of the procedural changes that you've seen in your roles? To your point, we've just talked about one in particular, which is a great example of equifying. I don't know if that's actually a word. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) I make up words too (laughs) all the time. (laughs) Make it equitable for the whole team. I think that is so awesome. What are other things that you've either seen done or done yourself in your time as leadership to really make healthcare more equitable for not just diverse folks, but for all folks? Because what you're talking about affects everyone, diverse or not. Yeah, I think especially in healthcare, one of the things that I've tried to consistently advocate for, and I remember doing this during COVID, is who is looking at our protocols of medical care for the communities that have disparate outcomes? And I remember um, during COVID, I was at Community Health Network, and I remember speaking up on several times about this issue. So During COVID, every health system just had a lot going on. We would get the report, how many people are coming in, how many people are dying. And I always remember asking, do we have a racial breakdown of that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do we have a racial? We have to get to a racial background of that because what I'm seeing in my church and in my community settings and what you're hearing nationally is that there are certain people who are not going to make it out of this. And so does that mean that we should have when people come to our ED? who fit that demographic? Should we be doing something different? Should we be holding them on observation? Should we be, right. you know, doing extra steps? I remember speaking up against uh, about that. In my current role, I view my current role as an opportunity for me to be a voice for the voiceless, for me to really bring to attention um, what's going on, like ground floor with community members and their health and the social determinants of health to the most highest level of the organization that I can and to put action plans in place that are going to benefit them, that ensure that somebody in the boardroom is speaking up for them, that someone in the boardroom 
or on the senior leadership team is speaking up for those in the communities that we interface with. So we have um, this community health team has a focus of health equity built into the definition. Mm. I work closely with our chief health equity officer. She's a bad girl. She is so awesome, Dr. Tucker Edmonds. And we said that we came to the organization within three months of each other and said, we're going to do this together. We're going to make sure that whatever table we're at, where we can advocate for those who don't have a voice, who have limited resources, who are black and brown or refugee, that we are the one person, the squeaky wheel saying, hey, don't forget about this. Don't forget about the perspective of this. And we have to build some of these programs that we have around them and their circumstance versus the norm of healthcare. And that's the role that I have. And I'm so blessed. That's powerful. So blessed to be able to do it because who's going to speak up for them? You know, our healthcare system, you know, just historically and structurally was built around, um, you know, having your acute care setting, your hospital setting, having your primary care setting. But that doesn't work for everybody. Right. It doesn't work for everybody. So how can I use this opportunity, this blessing of a community health department to really make sure that the focus is on who has the least, how can we get out into the community and touch lives in the areas that they feel comfortable coming and showing up in and really making an impact um, and being the voice for them. And I'm blessed. I'm blessed. This was, while it was a hard decision to leave a place where I had a great uh, track record and great opportunities, Really, this opportunity is a calling for me. Yeah, it sounds like um, it. It's really a calling for me. And I'm blessed to be able to have the opportunity to be that voice. That's so powerful. And I'm so thankful that, you know, our community has someone like you at the table who can speak and be in those rooms, have a seat, have a voice for so many who not only don't have a voice, but aren't even seen, aren't Mm -hmm. even recognized. So thank you for that, because it does sound like a calling. It absolutely sounds like something that is greater than one person and then greater than yourself. That's that's really powerful. So you've just talked about how you are now in a position to advocate for those who have disparate, you know, health outcomes, don't have the benefit or the privilege of just being able to go see a doctor when they're actually sick. And so that seems like, okay, that is the current version of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the healthcare space, Mm -hmm. right? Health equity. That's right. That's right. That's today. But you've been in this field for two decades and you've seen how diversity, equity, and inclusion and the meaning of that has changed in healthcare. Just, we're just talking about healthcare over the course of that 20 years from that being, you know, where many companies are now where we're just trying to get more diverse representation, more nurses, more candy stripers, more doctors, physicians, et cetera, of color, of diverse backgrounds in the setting. That is what I would think is kind of the ground floor. What has been some of the evolution of that diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape from the beginning, from what you remember originally to where you are now, where it's sitting in the boardroom and being the voice of the voiceless? I agree. A lot of times when we talk about DEI and healthcare spaces. Do we have enough nurses? Do we have enough healthcare representatives of color who are actually doing the care? And I think that that is important and that's still an opportunity. That's still a conversation. Absolutely. So the things that have evolved, one, 
do we have those voices in the boardroom? Do we have those voices in executive leadership teams? Because it has to start at the top. It has to be at the executive leadership team. Do we have metrics that at the very top of the organization that reflect the change that we want to see? Data, right? Data, yep. Are our health protocols aligned with what we see in disparities? And if we are still in a situation where sometimes healthcare um, within the four walls has some challenges with health equity, what innovative models of care are we coming up with within our systems, but also out in the community to address it? The other big thing that has been the evolution along with that conversation is a focus more on what we call in healthcare social determinants of health versus your actual healthcare delivery. It's a known fact that 80%, 80% of a person's health outcome is due to these social determinants or impediments of health, meaning do you have food access? Right. Do you have transportation? What level of education you're at? What's your economic stability? Yeah. And housing. so housing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you have a means of working and taking care of your family, child care? So one of the big projects that I'm working on um, within our community health team and that my team is doing a great job standing up is if, if social determinants of health is 80% of a person's health outcome and 20% is what we do in healthcare and the health protocols and things like that. Now, we can't mess up the 20%. Let's get that straight, right? We cannot mess up the 20%. However, if we don't have a mechanism for identifying and acting upon that 80% that leads to their health outcome, then we need to prioritize that. Right. Because no matter what we do that's right. in the healthcare system, that's only 20%. You can't make up for that. You 80. cannot make up that's for right. that 80. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so if we get somebody well from their emergency room visit and get them on medication, and then send them out the door, but they have transportation issues. They can't get back. They can't afford the medication moving forward. And we just send them out the door saying, we have done our job. We are kidding ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. We are kidding ourselves. And so we really have to incorporate social determinants of health and how we address it with every patient in need in our system. It is vital that we incorporate that in the healthcare equation because that's how we're going to get true equity is making sure that these things are taken care of alongside their health, their core health needs. That's so important. And you're, once again, it's a global issue. It isn't just a local or specific issue. That was Nicole Wilson, Vice President of Community Health Operations for IU Health on this Women's History Month episode of the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned um, that you took this role in the midst of COVID. I think I remember yeah. that correctly. And I have a cousin who is a long-term nurse. She's been a nurse for maybe not 20 years, but a good 15. And I just saw her and she said she's done. 
Yep. She's done with nursing. Yep. She can't take it anymore. COVID like put her over the edge. She said she's in Cincinnati and she said, you know, my my healthcare system is requiring us to do way too much. We don't have the staff. We don't have the background. She's like, I'm done. I'm going to get my real estate license. And that really, really stuck with me because I remember her being a young nurse when she yes. was super excited and super passionate. And now she's done. And it, it got me thinking about we saw on the news about how healthcare workers were really struggling through COVID and really yes. going through changes. But, you know, this is my family. So this was my first time to kind of see that up and close. And it really struck me. So I want to ask you, you know, what has been your experience during and post COVID regarding a couple things? A, our country's appreciation or lack thereof for data and science and healthcare workers and all all the critical factors and resources that have historically driven public safety and public health care decisions in America, all of a sudden, all of that was questionable and nothing was factual. And it, it was, a, as a former scientist, it was a very interesting time for me, and I'm sure for you as well, as a person in the healthcare industry. Also, what do you see as some of the biggest losses of our healthcare system during COVID, as well as some of the biggest gains during that time? Let me start with that last question, the okay. biggest losses and biggest gains. Yeah. Um, COVID to me exposed the great disparity between the haves and the haves not yeah, in yeah. healthcare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And between black and brown and those who are underserved and those who have. Yeah. I mean, if you are not turning your system around post-COVID with eyes open to that, I don't know what you're doing right. <laughs> because it was so evident. The number of people, the percentage of people who died that were black, brown, and underserved was just ginormous compared to yeah. you know the broader majority. So that was the spotlight. I see that as the biggest loss, but I also see it as the biggest opportunity. Like I said, if you're not turning your system around on this, right. um, and maybe that was what some people needed to to hire a chief health equity officer or whatever in their system, but that that was a loss, but yet an opportunity because we can't you can't really look at that and be the same. Yeah, I can't look at it. Turn and be the same. turn your eye. Turn yeah, your yeah. Eye, right? turn your head. Um, yep, yep. So that you know really sat with me for a while. Especially, you know, my husband having lost his parents during COVID, my dad and my sister having COVID on the heels of a car accident and me just thinking, I don't, I really can't lose my whole family in this whole, right. you know, two years. This is just a little too much. Right, right. Um, but that's what happened to some people. I think the gains from COVID or the realizations were that sometimes healthcare, just like large institutions, educational institutions, government, sometimes we can move slow mm. and we are on a path to moving slow. But we really show during COVID, we can make some things happen in a quick amount of time. We can virtualize a whole health system. We can automate some things. We can do things more efficiently than we have in past. And the thought for me is, who's going to pick up from that standpoint and take the ball and move it forward versus who's going to go back to old practices or who's going to pick up and move the ball forward with the patients where that 
is a strong response to, and then make sure from an equitable lens that we have more hands on for those who can't, who don't even have a ball. Right. 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 And so how are we moving forward, taking the best of what we learned from virtualization, from moving quicker, um, making more decisions more quickly, and those who lost and changing our game plan? That's so important because we have to do better, right? There will be another pandemic or another something one day, right? Mm -hmm. We have to do better than that, what we did in the past. So it is encouraging to me to hear how passionate you are. My only hope is that all people who are in the healthcare system have the advantage and benefit of having someone who is as passionate as you about the system and and the actual health outcomes that their patients get. Yeah. And you mentioned your cousin, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing that comes to mind is the workforce for healthcare Absolutely. is dramatically changed. There are people who through COVID, you know, resigned yeah. because it was so rough taking care of patients. It was so rough seeing that and was so rough feeling like I'm risking my life. Yeah. Yeah. Because I could get this virus and take it home to my family. There was so much of that going on. And we have to think about workforce a little bit differently moving forward because here's the thing. All of us lost staff members to some virtual opportunity. And in healthcare, there are some roles that you cannot do virtually. There are some things we can do virtually and we need to pick up that ball and move with it. But bedside care right. is bedside care. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> somebody needs to be there when somebody's on a ventilator, yeah. when somebody's at the most vulnerable time of their life. And there were people who opted out. They were like, hey, you know, and I remember having some conversations with some physicians and they were like, I didn't sign up for this. And I said, you absolutely signed up for this. Right. You absolutely signed. This is what we do in healthcare. Right. We. This is what we signed up for because this is the worst of the worst. This right. is like, you know, the Titanic yeah, of yeah, healthcare. Yeah, yeah. And if we're not there, who is? That's right. And we're you know, the front line. Yeah. There, there's nobody behind us. Yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah. some people couldn't, you know, they didn't see that. They said, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for this normal, you know, physician care role or normal nursing care role. And um, we have to figure out how to bridge that divide because less and less people are going to be enrolling for, you know, healthcare careers or going to med school and nursing school. And more people are taking options like real estate, or there's even healthcare options that are more virtual now that can focus on, you know, a well or set of patients or things of that nature. So we really have to find some innovative ways to address workforce. But you know, one one thing that was so interesting to me during COVID and why I appreciate the challenge, the unique challenge that it presented was because this was the first time I can recall in history where the patients weren't following the doctor's guidelines, right? And so that brings up a whole different set of emotions and trauma for healthcare workers when, to your point, I'm risking my life being here to help you who are not, who is not doing what we asked you to do, whether that's get the vaccine, stay in the house, wear a mat, whatever, whatever it is. But yet I'm here risking my life, you know, using my time and not I, I think part of what, at least from my vantage point, and I'm not in healthcare, but what made COVID so challenging for healthcare workers was not just the 
in it, the trauma, the being on call and all the death and everything. But it was the lack of appreciation, the lack of following the rules, you know, like and then expecting them to come in and play Superman without any poor feelings or I mean, nobody wants to feel unappreciated. You know, that's very, very challenging. And there were two dynamics to that. To me, there was a trust dynamic. There were communities who like, I don't trust that. Yeah. I ain't doing it. Yeah. Right. But there was also a political aspect, a too. Huge political that was aspect. out of control, you know, Nicole's opinion. Right. But there was also a political aspect to it where, you know, healthcare, we want to base these decisions and as much data right. and facts and figures as possible. It ain't perfect. Sometimes it, we didn't have time to do evidence based. It was evidence informed right, or data right. informed. Right. But you know, the protection of people at the public health level is for the best of all society. And to see that politicized was disappointing, very disappointing. But there were true trust factors that we could, you know, had we been doing our job to build trust through the years, maybe there were communities that would have come along a little bit more readily with the vaccine and, and the recommendations. Now, that exposed that we have more work to do. Absolutely. Um, in those areas. So you mentioned, you know, the disparate outcomes for so many communities. And we are perfectly aware, even in Indiana and Indianapolis, that, you know, so many of the higher rates of maternal mortality, cancers, COVID, we've already talked about, are in certain particular, you know, diverse populations. We know that rural populations often have those same issues and challenges. What are large healthcare organizations like yours doing, not just to, you know, make healthcare for those who are involved in the system better, but also access to quality healthcare? Because I know I'm from a rural community and I know the issues between rural and urban are very similar in that there's often not access to yeah. quality healthcare. What are you all doing and what can be done? Yeah, we do have a rural strategy within IU Health that is being activated and has been activated in some critical access hospitals. But, you know, there are pockets where, where can a woman get a delivery? Where can she deliver her baby? Does she have to drive so far? So um, that's where some of our community health programmings come into play, where we are currently in our South Central region, we have nurse family partnership so that we can have an advocate, a liaison, a nurse working with pregnant moms um, where there's limited access. Um, We're standing up a program called We Care, just trialed it last fall and about to branch it across the state where we're going to have community health workers working with mothers, working with pregnant women, and they will work with them all the way up until the child is one to navigate them through this motherhood journey to get them some of the um, social needs that they may have addressed and to make sure that there is a connection point to the nearest healthcare facility and that they have kind of an end to make things easier for them. There's different types of programmatic things that are at play that community health teams are building. I know other systems are building. This is not a space in community health per se that systems should be competing. We need to be galvanizing around all All of this, all hands on deck. (laughs) 
You know, the other area that is a new aspect to my team when I kind of came in and kind of said, okay, how can we structure this in a way that um, meets the most vulnerable and meets masses of people across the state is through policy. So we have a dedicated health policy role and function. We work closely with our government affairs team. And I know our government affairs team works closely with other health systems, government affairs, because a lot of the things that are coming through at the state house impact a person's health. We're not trying to be political. We're not trying to, you know, wave the flag of one party or the other, but we are out here trying to do is make sure that if you have a policy that impacts someone's health, their access, their choice to the options before them, that we should speak up and we should share what policies that other states have passed that have been successful, what data is out there that shows, hey, we know if this is going to pass, we know that babies are going to die. Right. We know that more women are going to die. Right. And we know that those women are going to be black and brown. That's just what it is. Right. And so we have to do our best to come together to advocate and put policies out there and work with legislators. It's an uphill battle in Indiana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an uphill battle with health. And so, like I said, we can't be concerned about the party side, but what's in these bills that is impacting health? And that's going to make it harder for us to do the healthcare delivery job because it limits access or yeah. puts a limit on choice. I appreciate you speaking to that because I certainly wanted to touch on that because I, I think some of the bills that you're describing kind of throw healthcare systems in a political yeah. landscape just because it's dealing with health. Absolutely. It's dealing with access to health. It's dealing with the choice of what healthcare options are, are even available. available. That's yeah. absolutely right. And it's hard because, you know, it would be I definitely respect the role of legislators. Absolutely. And I hope that they are taking the time to really understand what position some of the bills and activities, you know, how they impact healthcare workers, how they impact patients. And if you haven't been a healthcare person that works in the healthcare field, then make sure you take the time to ask and to understand it fully before you make a bill based off of a party line that you may not best serve all of the citizens of Indianapolis, especially those that have the least. It's just interesting how sometimes the perception on a, can be, hey, this person doesn't even have the opportunity to be a mother because he's a male. Right. And they're making decisions about women and women's health care. And that's interesting. You know, it's interesting uh, for me to process to say, hey, I'm not sure that as you even understand, I struggle to become a mom right. and what that feels like. Right. And so until you've taken the time to understand and empathize and walk in someone's shoes, are you sure that that outcome that you're proposing is what's going to be best for everybody? Yeah, that that's so powerful. And it is the stories of women, as you talk to women, I know you talk to women all the time about, you know, their health care choices, particularly when um, Roe v. Wade was was shot down. I spoke with so many peers and friends that, you know, we've known each other for years. I wasn't aware of, you know, some Absolutely. things that ha- 
And they just so freely were discussing how they're so thankful they had the opportunity because they yeah. wasn't ready. They couldn't do it. Wh whatever the case may be, they were thankful to have had the choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now as a mother of an 18 year old son, as I think about the future and the options that he or his, you know, future partner may or may not have, that's challenging. And a lot of times people don't understand the medical implications. You're right. Like sometimes women are in hard choices because medically situations sometimes are not sustainable. Sometimes right. pregnancies That's are not right. sustainable. And, and it truly is a life or death it's situation. It's a life or death situation absolutely. for you. Yes, absolutely. And it's a life or death situation for your child. Yeah, yeah. Or you know the that there's a 99% chance that even if your child is born, yeah. that their first month of life yeah. is going to be a painful one. And it's probably going to end in death. So don't take for granted the decision that that woman has to make. It's not a flippant decision. Absolutely. It's a hard as hell decision. Absolutely. It's hard as hell and it's to be in that position. Decision. It's a lifetime decision. Right. But you're the only person that knows what's right. best for a child growing inside of you. Yeah. And weighing whether, you know, is it best? Am I going to? be able to live with myself for letting this child be in pain for a month, immense pain and surgery after surgery, only to know that really there was no chance at the beginning. Or am I going to make my peace and have them pass comfortably? Right, right. With me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a hard decision. It's hard. And until you've been there, I, I can't see how you're trying to, you know, yeah. make a decision. Yeah. For On behalf of so, so many Absolutely. women, just, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's challenging. And I think it, it raises challenges, you know, not just for the individuals, but for the state itself, because, you know, the people in the nation are looking at what's happening in Indiana and are making choices on whether they come set up shop here, whether they go other places. I mean, these are all real life decisions that do affect our state, our economy, our diversity pipeline, our talent, right? All of that. So I, I really appreciate you broaching this subject. And as we come to a close, Nicole, I, I just want to ask you um, some final questions about, you know, again, having had this long career in healthcare as an Indiana leader from on the ground to all the way up to sitting in the boardroom, you know, you've had some great opportunities to really make impact and to be amongst the leadership who are dealing with, you know, some of these diversity, equity, and inclusion challenges. And I'd like you to advise so many of our leaders who hopefully are listening today, who are faced with so many of the challenges that you are as well in how to diversify the workforce, how to make things more equitable for the people on your team and the patients that you serve. What tips, tools, resources would you advise any of them to continue progress in the ball forward for the whole state with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion, even if not in the healthcare sector? Yeah, I think it's really important to listen to the community and involve the community. Mm. Bring them in and have them be on your board. <clears throat> Why not? Why not make a position for someone who has lived experience of figuring out, you know, health equity um, issues or social determinants of health issues. Why not make a space for them somewhere within your leadership structure yeah. to have that voice at the table? Because, you know, we go back to, oh, we want to diversify the 
boardroom and those types of things. That's the reason why you you want to have people there who can speak up, Mm -hmm. who have lived on 34th and Martin Luther King or who currently still live there or who currently have struggles just to make sure that we are keeping ourselves grounded, that we don't get so up in the sky that we're trying to solve all these issues for everybody and be there. And we really haven't taken the time to authentically enlist the voice of someone who is going through and who can share that does or doesn't work or thank you, but no thank you or or what else we're spinning our wheels. I think that we and all of our organizations have to be willing to put DEI, health equity, whatever um, is applicable in your area on a scoreboard and everyone has to corral around it. And that has to start at the culture of the start the top of the organization and making sure that it trickles down. That's the only way you can stop talking about it, but being about it. I mean, there's a lot of things too, and um, this may be risky to say, but a lot of organizations tie incentive dollars to these outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, if you're about it, be about it. Be about it. You know what I mean? Because you're going to find that there's going to be some people who are going to authentically do it because that's their calling. But there's going to be many that chase whatever scorecard you put in front of them. So you have to be willing to put and invest and put things on a scorecard um, at the highest levels of the organization to call to attention that this is important. This is not going anywhere. And this is how we operate. I, I think that's so powerful. And I think so many people, because it's been my experience that people are absolutely hesitant to do that. Right? They are. The metrics are real. We, we're scared to capture the data because we're scared of what it's going to show us. And if we capture yeah. the data, then we're scared to implement it because, you know, like. And be transparent. Put it out there for the public to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. Say this is the baseline. This is the starting line. And this is, you know, this yeah. is the goal for the future. I, I think those are powerful powerful tools. I am certain that so many people will heed your advice and your guidance. But most importantly, I just want to thank you for representing for all of those, again, who don't have the voice, who don't have the insight to know how complicated, and I'm sure it's so complex, um, a healthcare system and navigating a healthcare system like any system or any institution can be when you're particularly pursuing equity and diversity and inclusion, what's best practices, what's best policies and procedures for all involved. And I'm so thankful and I feel much more stable and encouraged that there's somebody like you in our Indiana healthcare system fighting for the rights of all those. That's why you're my Women's History Month guest on the Freedom Forum. And I'm so thankful to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here and I just um, love you and appreciate all that you do. Thank you again to Nicole Wilson, and thanks to you for joining us on this 20th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Central Indiana business community. Thank you.